Please be seated. That's a phenomenal song that actually, actually introduces in a wonderful way the Christmas season that, you know, and we'll talk about in the next several weeks that, you know, we have this, this beautiful yearly celebration of the birth of our Savior. And we tend to, to keep a disconnect, not on purpose, but just culturally speaking, a disconnect from the birth of the Savior to the death of the Savior. When there is a direct line between the two. The birth, he was born to die for us. And that song was beautiful in, in lining it all out. And so, Jesus is calling. I hope today you're here um, with open hearts to hear more from his word. We're in John chapter 5, you want to open your Bibles? As you can see, this, with the subtle decorations, Christmas is here. <laughs> and, um, and also, this afternoon at 3 o'clock, the Takata, which is the, the North Tahoe Symphony and Choir, is bringing us Handel's Messiah here this afternoon. If you've never heard Handel's Messiah, um, it, it is unbelievable. They were here practicing during the week, and um, it's, it's so beautiful with the choir. It, it normally starts from $25 up into the 40s, but if you can't afford that, by the way, it's a good contribution if you were to come and pay, but if you can't afford that, or, or Mira, right, Mira's in the back, she's on the board for Takata, because they use our building, they've given us certain amounts of um, freebies. So if you want to come, can't afford it, talk to Mira, she'll get you in for free. Um, it's a blessing. So, so with that, let's thank the Lord for his word today. Father, we thank you. And just open our eyes, um, our hearts, our minds um, to these stories, these true stories about your amazing son. In his name we give you praise. Amen. We're in Luke, or not Luke, John 5. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. The ushers will bring you one. If you don't own a Bible, keep it. So in John 5, I want to remind you of the theme, though. So turn your Bibles to John 5. And when you get there, we'll step back a little bit into 4 as we introduce 5. But I want to remind you of the theme of the Gospel of John because it comes to us front and center in these stories we're going to read today. The theme is the idea of a sign. Jesus had come to do signs to point out his identity. So look at John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. It says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So believing, trusting, not just acknowledging the truth, but actually putting your trust in him, because he is the son of God. And in, in scripture we see, or in John, we see the son of God opens up in John chapter one that Jesus is God himself. And we're gonna see that today in this passage also. And he's the Messiah. He is the Christ. Christ the Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. The promised one who has come to redeem us and save us from our enemies. So that's the theme, and we're going to see it front and center, these signs. Now, would you agree that it would be really nice to see a miraculous sign? I mean, it'd be really cool not just to, to elevate our faith if you already believe, but also for those who don't believe. And it's, um, you know, even, even John, or, or excuse me, in John chapter 20, when Jesus rose from the dead, he appears to the disciples, and Thomas wasn't there. Thomas was not there. And the other disciples said, we've seen Jesus, he's alive. And what did Thomas say? Not buying it. 
Not till I can see him, put my fingers in the hole in his hands, my hand in the hole in his side. I won't believe. Then when Jesus does appear to Thomas, Thomas falls down and says, my Lord and my God. Remember what Jesus said after that? Blessed are you who have seen and believed. Even more blessed are those who have not seen and believed. So whether or not we've seen a sign or not, a genuine miraculous sign from God, the scriptures record what happened for us to believe. So with that, John chapter 5, now step back a few verses into 4. We have two signs. The end of chapter 4 ends in a sign, and the beginning of 5 ends in a sign, or starts with a sign. The first sign is the government official's son. In the story here, Jesus returns to Galilee. So there's this about an 80 mile, as the crow flies, between, between Jerusalem and where Jesus was stationed in Capernaum. We know Jesus was born in, in, um, in um, Nazareth. Did I get that right? Uh, duh. I've only been doing this for 40 years. Born in Bethlehem, but he's raised in Nazareth, up in Galilee. And, but, he's, but he does his ministry. His headquarters in his ministry is Capernaum on the north shore of the Lake of Galilee. And it's about 80 miles as the crow flies between the two. John records him going back and forth. It's probably a four, five, six-day walk between the two. That doesn't tell us much about that walk, except Jesus is there, he's here, he's there, he's here. So now we're up in Galilee. And it says specifically that a prophet has no honor in his own town. So keep that in mind. A prophet has no honor in his own town. And, and that's a true thing. I mean, think, think about the people who knew Jesus growing up. And all of a sudden now, he claims to be the Messiah, the Son of God. Think of someone in your hometown, the most virtuous kid there. And he starts saying, hey, I'm the Messiah, the Son of God. What do you say? This guy is starting to smoke things that he didn't smoke earlier. <laughs> so, you know, so, so we don't, we don't we, there's this expression, an expert is somebody who's from 50 miles away. We'll give honor to people we don't know who come in from out of town. But someone from our town, uh-uh, we're not going to honor them. So keep that in mind. As Jesus does this sign, John reminds us that his hometown didn't honor him as a prophet. So the crowds have gathered as he comes home. And um, he's in Capernaum on the north shore of Galilee. And a government official came to him pleading for Jesus to heal his son. We don't know much about this government official. He was Jewish or Gentile. We don't know. Most likely some, some level of Jewish because that's also Herod had headquarters there. Herod was a, a, a leader of the Jewish people, a king of the Jewish people. So, so realize this. This man has come to say, ask Jesus to heal his son. His son is not with him. His son is at home sick. So Jesus, would you come with me to heal my son? So let's drop in at 448. Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. So look on the screen up here. Jesus said to him, singular, right? Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The you is plural. So there's a crowd around Jesus we, we just learned. If you read a few verses earlier, there's a crowd that's come to him because they've heard of his reputation down in Jerusalem. And now out of this crowd comes one man saying, please come heal my son. So Jesus now addresses the crowd. The one that does not honor him. The one that knows he's been doing miracles. 
but they want to see it. Unless you see signs, you will not believe, he says. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. In Greek, this is a very terse conversation. Jesus says, unless you see signs, you won't believe. So Jesus is talking to the crowd. The, the, man, the man's not interested in, in, in what the crowd thinks or what Jesus thinks of the crowd. It, not to be rude, but he's, he's terse. Sir, please come heal my son. And what does Jesus say? Equally terse. Go, your son will be healed. This is the power of Jesus to heal from afar. And it said the man believed. Then he goes home. And he, asks his, he finds that his son is healed, and he asks his servants, when did it happen? It happened exactly the hour Jesus said it would happen. So it said the man and his whole household believed in Jesus. And then the, the story ends there in chapter 4 saying that this was the second sign Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. The first sign was the water to wine. Now Jesus did a second sign in the same region of healing this nobleman's son. Jesus gets frustrated with crowds for wanting to see signs when they've already seen some. When people today say, so when I asked you, would you like to see a sign, I saw genuine enthusiasm. Because as a follower of Jesus, we believe he has miraculous powers even today. And we believe through the power of his spirit, he does these things. There are miracles today that happen to people. Miracle, by definition, is something that doesn't happen often. If it happens all the time, guess what? It's normal, it's not a miracle. But we've all like to see it, to boost our faith. And also believe that it also elicits faith. But let's remember, many people in Jesus' days have seen signs and did not believe. We'll look at a story now of a whole group of people who saw a person healed but did not believe. So as we go now to the lame man by the pool, Jesus travels back now to Jerusalem. It doesn't tell us about the six, seven-day walk. Just the next scene, he's in Jerusalem. Verse, chapter 5, verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, if you know your geography, just real quick here so you understand biblical geography. If I'm going, if I'm going to go north, I say I'm going if I'm going south, I say I'm going, because we go up and down by north and south. But for Jews, north, up and down was Jerusalem. Jerusalem was at 2,500 feet above sea level. Most of Israel was down from there. Didn't matter where you were going, north, south, east, or west, if you're going to Jerusalem, you are going up. So Jesus is going up to Jerusalem. Verse 2, now there was in Jerusalem by the sheep gate, a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these laid a multitude of invalids, a multitude, and some say a, a many and many. So this is a word to describe, you know, it, it's, not, it's, not that, it's not that you couldn't count them, but there was too many to just look at and count. So lots of people around this pool who were sick. Let me, let me get there. Okay, wrong side. Blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. 
When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. So let's stop there for a minute. We're missing some information. So do you find it interesting that Jesus asked, do you want to be healed? If you could not walk for 38 years, would you want to be healed? I, I, I certainly would. I mean, even though 38 years, this is my normal life. Darn right I'd want it. So why does Jesus ask the question, do you want to be healed? Now, if anyone's in the room reading King James or New King James, well, I, I don't know what you're reading. Look down at your passage. Look at Bibles. You all have Bibles in your hands, right? Oh, that was silence. Did you catch that silence? And I'm not trying to. I, I, I really... I have no problem reading Bibles from electronics. We just need to read our Bibles. So whatever you, have, whatever you have, even though it's on the screen, please bring it Sunday mornings. Whatever version you're reading, chances are, unless it's King James or New King James, verse 4 is missing. Do you see that? There's no verse 4 unless you're reading the King James or New King James. Do you understand verses were added a th- over 1,000 years after the New Testament was written? The chapters and verses aren't there originally. Um, they were added much, much later for convenience of, of referencing. So the King James and the New King James actually have this verse at verse 4. After verse 3, when it says, In, in the, these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Verse 4, For an angel went down to, at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now back to verse 5 in most versions. And one man was there who had been paralyzed and been invalid for 38 years when Jesus, was lying, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd already been there a long time, said, do you want to be healed? The man says, of course I do. But sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up while I'm going down and other steps in before me. So the King James and the New King James have a verse explaining the historical situation. The other ones don't. So how do we deal with this? And I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. I taught a whole class earlier this year that's on, online. And we, it was an eight-week class on how we got our Bibles. And it, the thousands of manuscripts we have, and there's some variations in them. And this is one that the King James chose to put in. The other translations did not put it in as original. It's, it's obviously a true historical story that informs the situation. The man says, I don't get to the water fast enough. Someone else does. And without verse 4 in there, we don't fully understand what he's talking about. But the tradition at that time was, whatever reason, God's mercy on sending an angel to stir up the water, the first one in was healed. That's why all these people are around the pool. They're waiting for the water to be stirred. And the man says, I never make it on time. Someone always beats me to it. So Jesus questioned, do you want to be healed? And don't be disturbed by different translations with different verses. Our Bible is the result of a very long human process of which God oversaw and inspired to be the Word of God. But it's not something he dropped from heaven. It is a very human process of inspiring writers and then even, I believe, overseeing copying so that what he wanted preserved for us is preserved. 
Lots of good stuff out there. If you want, check out those cor- that course online I did, or I'll give you some books to read. So now, let's drop into verse 8. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed, and he walked. Now, that day was the Sabbath. That's going to introduce the the tension we're going to receive now. There's multitudes of people around this pool. It records only Jesus, Jesus only healing one person. And in a bit here, it's going to talk about the crowd that came around Jesus at that moment. It's going to talk about that in a minute. But whatever reason, Jesus zeroed on this one man. Do you want to be healed? And he healed him on the Sabbath and said, now take up your bed, walk, and go home. So imagine, and I don't know for sure, imagine today, I don't know if these people are homeless living there. I don't know if someone takes them down there every day. But imagine a, a mattress he hauls down there every day or someone hauls down for him and he's lying on it. He has no ability to haul it off. But Jesus heals him. For 38 years, he's been an invalid. Now he's not. Pick up your bed and go home. So you think this guy's a bit depressed and sour, and this guy is jumping around with joy. So let's read with the story as it goes on. Oh, as we do that, we're going to get into the idea of the Sabbath and the religious leader's response to this. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. Let's stop there for a minute again. Look at the screen if you would. Everyone's a Jew. He's in the temple or he's in a colonnade outside the temple. So when it says the Jews, John likes to use the phrase the Jews to refer to the Jewish leadership. The Pharisees and the Sadducees. That's who John's talking about because it's not like there's, there's multitudes of people, but only Jews were upset. Now, everyone at this point in this historical situation is Jewish. Jesus is talking about the leadership is now pointing a finger at the man and saying, you can't do this. It's the Sabbath day. An amazing miracle has just taken place. And what's their emphasis? You're breaking the Sabbath. Not, wow, you're healed. 38 years you've been lying there. Isn't this amazing? God is so good. No, you're breaking the law. You're not supposed to carry your bed on the Sabbath. Why are you carrying that around? But he answered and said, the man who healed me, the man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man that said to you, take up your bed and walk? Because they're not going to go thank him. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. You can imagine that that miracle, that miracle, all of a sudden people are coming, you know, so so whether it's the lame people that can get around or the people who have brought the lame people, all of a sudden everyone's amazed and they're surrounding Jesus. So he moves on. The guy doesn't even know it was Jesus. Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. 
And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. I suggest to you, we're going to see here, we've seen some tension between Jesus and the religious leaders already, and it's going to start amping up every chapter until they kill him. I said this once before, and a few of you objected to it, so I'm going to say it again. (laughs) Hopefully say it differently. I said once before, Jesus is baiting the leaders in order to get them to kill him. And that, to some of you, was Jesus being a dysfunctional person by doing something like that. So I still think he's, he is, Jesus could have healed a man on, on what, what day is the Sabbath? Jesus could have healed a man on Sunday. Easily. Why did he go up on Sabbath and do it? This man didn't even know who Jesus was, so this place was not a place Jesus normally frequented, evidently. So Jesus could have gone on a different day, but he went on the Sabbath. I think he is setting up the conflict. Because not only, so before when I said he baited them to get them to kill him, maybe an overstatement, that's more than scripture says. But without a doubt, all through all the gospels, the conflict between the Pharisees and Sadducees' teachings about who God is, is very different from the teachings about who God is from Jesus' mouth. So he does create conflict to correct their lies for the people listening. And they're lying about the Sabbath. Here's what I want to do. I want to read to you Exodus 20 about the Sabbath. But first, first I I skipped over a verse I just want to touch on and then come back to the Sabbath. Um, Excuse me. Now I'm lost. Jesus says to him, In verse 14, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. I didn't want to just skip over that. It's not the primary point of my message. But sin no more that nothing more will happen to you. So that suggests that 38 years earlier, he did some sin. And then the consequence was his, his, his being an invalid. And possibly, let's not count that out. Here's here's what we got to be careful of. Let's avoid two extremes. That every hard time in your life is because of your sin. Let's let's just avoid that. The book of Job tells us that's not true. Job suffers greatly. And his friends even said, Job, you wouldn't be suffering if you hadn't sinned so much. Job said, I didn't do anything to deserve this. And in the end, he's vindicated. It wasn't because of his sin. So there's hard times and, and pain that comes into our life not because of our sin. But let's not presume that sometimes there is pain in hard times in our life because of our choices. Do not all choices have consequences? And so our sins have consequences. In this universe God has designed, there's sowing and reaping. So we always have to ask the question, when something happens to us, God, did I bring this on? And I firmly believe if it's something we've done, He'll convict us of that. But there's also just a universe that is ravaged by human sin and evil that results in a suffering. 
when we did nothing wrong. So just give some thought to that. I'll come back to it. But let's go back to the Sabbath now. The Sabbath is very important to God. Jesus says, not Jesus, God says this in the Ten Commandments. This is the fourth commandment in Exodus 20. You can go to Deuteronomy 6 and see the list again there. In both lists of the Ten Commandments, the fourth commandment, or keep the Sabbath, is the longest one in explanation. So it's very important to God. Listen to the explanation in Exodus 20, verse 8 through 11. It's on the screen. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord, your God. And on it you shall do, not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. So, by the way, the Sabbath day was not to go to church. When it was instituted, the Sabbath day was to stay home and rest. And over time, like we all do, we create rules around God's commands. And those rules often are very mo- a lot more specificity than what God said. It's kind of like, you know, God says don't cross this line. So we'll step back and draw another line with way more rules to protect that line. Now, there might be some wisdom in this, but then when, I draw a li- when God draws a line there and I step back and draw a line here and say, you better keep my line or you're sinning, what's that called? Legalism. So that's what's happened here. And in all four Gospels, Jesus regularly corrects the teachings of the religious leaders on their legalistic practices regarding the Sabbath. Jesus regularly does good things on the Sabbath, and he gets in trouble for it. He, he, so, so as you read the Gospels, you'll see this. In Mark chapter 2, when Jesus was in trouble for the Sabbath, you can't do that on the Sabbath, Jesus. Jesus boldly says this. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Another place in Matthew 12, he says, the Son of Man, me, is the Lord of the Sabbath. I am the creator of the Sabbath, Jesus is saying. I determine what should happen on the Sabbath and not. So these guys are condemning Jesus, not recognizing who they're talking to. They had a lot of rules. They had what's called the Sabbath day's travel. You couldn't walk more than two-thirds of a mile away from your home on the Sabbath or you've broken the Sabbath. Scriptures never say this. This was the rules of the religious leaders. Easy to get around, though. So from this church to Judy's house, I'm not telling them exactly where you live, Judy, it's about two-thirds of a mile. So, But I I really want to go down to Incline Beach, another two-thirds of a mile. So I'm going to take a backpack and put it at Judy's house, which is my second home. Then I can travel another two-thirds of a mile without breaking the Sabbath. Do you see the hypocrisy here? And then it's quick to point out, these guys are pointing out other people's sins on the Sabbath. Specifically, the man carrying his pallet or his bed, and Jesus telling the man to pick up his bed. So what do we do with this? There's some important principles here. And they come out in Matthew chapter 12. And... um, in Matthew 12, Jesus' disciples are walking through a grain field on the Sabbath, and they're hungry. So they take some grain, 
and they have, to, they have to rub it like this to get the husks off it, to get down to the kernel they can eat. What is this? Work. So they do the work, they eat. The Pharisees say, your disciples have broken the Sabbath. Here's what Jesus says to them. I tell you, and, and, and it's also in regard to the temple worship. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Quoted an Old Testament prophet, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. In John chapter 9, when the Pharisees accused Jesus' disciples of doing something wrong, Jesus says, go learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Well, now three chapters later, they're criticizing his disciples again. And he said, if you had known what this meant. Obviously, they didn't go learn. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would not condemn the guiltless. What's Jesus saying? I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So, so sacrifice is the law. You make sacrifices for your sins. It's a law, and, and it was rec- you had to keep it. But behind that is God being merciful to you. What's most important to God is his mercy, not your strict obedience of the letter. I'm not justifying disobeying here. Please hear me. But when we create these rules and we judge one another on whether we kept the rules or not, we've now made the rules more important than the people. When actually what's most important is the people. And the rules of God, the commands of God, are designed to help us. So does that make sense? We're not, man was not made for the Sabbath. It wasn't a thing called the Sabbath that was ultimate and God made man for that Sabbath. No, God made man who was ultimate in God's creation. Then he created the Sabbath for man's well-being. And, and how does the Sabbath help you, by the way? I'm talking to you um, workaholics. You rest. It's it's not about gathering. It's about resting. Some of you people need to rest more. My wife tells me this all the time. Um, But I'm the pastor. I ignore it. And she's not here. Guess what she's doing? Working. I'm going to talk to her when I get home. I've got to the place, and some of you know this already, because I don't return your phone calls on Saturday. It's a day off for Teresa and I, and I don't try not to do church work. I have to do one day, minimally, where it's just me and, and Teresa as we try and do what God's calling us to do. We all have to do that. It's made for us. But as soon as we turn the rules and laws God has put into place for our well-being into laws that we now condemn each other over, we've missed the point completely. Remember that next time you see somebody breaking a rule. It's not that the rules aren't important, but think mercy before judgment. Make sense? Okay. Let's go on now to the crescendo of this passage. Remember I said to you, um, Jesus got no honor from his hometown? Let's revisit the idea of honor. Verse 19. Oh, verse 18. I just don't skip that. 
So when Jesus said, my father is working until now and I am working, um, th- this is really brilliant. We just read the Sabbath day. What did the father do on the sixth, seventh day? He rested. What's Jesus saying? This is the Sabbath, by the way, when he's confronting them. My father's still working, and so am I. See, the seventh day reflected God's rest from creation. God does not rest from his salvation work. He's constantly saving people. And Jesus says, and so am I. You know this ticked them off big time. So now verse 19, or 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So one of the themes of John, John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. So a declaration immediately right out of the gates, Jesus is God. In the closing, in the closing chapters, Thomas falls down after seeing the resurrected Lord and says, my Lord and my God. Beginning to end, Jesus is God. So here we now have Jesus' enemies declaring who Jesus is, making himself equal with God. Now verse 19. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord. I'm going to read this whole paragraph to you, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Now here it is. Why has he given all judgment to the Son? So that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly I say to you, an hour is coming and now he is here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and to those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. It keeps going, but we're going to stop there. I want to jump back up to verse 21 at the heart of this passage about honoring the Son as you honor the Father. For Jesus, Jesus says this, for as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Ultimately, as we move on to the past, we see this is referring to the end times. Jesus talks about they're going to hear his voice and be raised from the dead. That's at the second coming. At the second coming, Jesus brings our ultimate salvation. We've talked about this. And at the second coming, Jesus is going to bring judgment on those who have not believed. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. And so th- this is the point we have to, to stop a moment And let's be um, sober here, that as we look at Scripture, we look at Matthew 24, Revelation 19 and 20, and other passages talk about Christ being the judge. All humans will stand before Christ. Those who have not trusted in Christ 
say ultimately in Revelation 20 are cast into the lake of fire. And it's, 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 it's the technical term for what we call hell. Read, it's a sobering passage, and it's supposed to scare the out of us. But 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, when Christ returns, that you and I, if we're followers of Jesus, will stand before him in judgment. It says, we will all give, at the judgment seat of Christ, we will all give an account for the works we've done in the body, whether good or evil. Every human being will stand before God and give an account. So let's be, um, let's be sober in this. Because right there, we just read, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Why? That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. You can't say, I don't believe in Jesus, but I believe in his Father. According to this, no. But honoring the Son, God has given all judgment to the Son so that we would honor him. What does that mean, to honor the Son as you honor the Father? The verb honor there is used in different contexts. It's used multiple times in the New Testament as they're repeating the fifth commandment, which is honor your mother and father, same word. So, so we were to give our mother and father a respect. The word honor has the concept of to show high regard for, to even revere. But this one says, honor Jesus as you honor the Father. This talks about a whole other level than honoring my parents. Because he is not just my Savior. According to this passage, he is my judge also. If you were to walk into a courtroom, how would you address the judge? So I, I regularly, we have staff meeting on Wednesdays. And I regularly will bring something from my sermon to, to open the staff meetings by way of devotional and or by way of helping me figure out how I'm going to say something or understand what it means. So I, I talked to the staff and said, let's talk about what does it mean to honor Jesus as you honor the Father? What's that look like? And the great, brilliant, and wise Matthew said, he says, when you walk in to a courtroom, you don't go to the judge, hey, bro, how you doing? What did you say? Your honor. Why? Because he has power over you. So you give him the respect due his name. Now in scripture, it says Jesus is our brother. But let's, let's figure out how we, as Jesus became human to be like us, to save us. How do we approach this Jesus in relationship as our Lord? as the Son of God, as our Savior? And what does it mean to honor Him as we honor the Father? I don't think Jesus has a problem with familiarity, but sometimes in our language as we approach Him, we, I think we can be a bit disrespectful. Uh, so so not, not, not as a seriousness, but I, I, yeah, we don't say, hey, bro, to Jesus. Let's know the Scriptures and the titles which he himself claims and scripture gives him and give him that honor that he is the Lord of the universe. So, so 
after it says in Philippians chapter 2, after Jesus died, was buried, rose again, it says the Father gave him the name above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. Which is a quote actually from Isaiah. Jesus Christ is Yahweh. The next verse, 12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So, I want a familiarity where I can sense Jesus is close to me and loves me and figuratively speaking, crawl up into his lap when I need comfort. I believe that's the Savior we have. But let's not forget who he is. The Lord of the universe that deserves respect. As we move through John, we're going to learn some other things about this. We're going to learn, do you love Jesus? John 15, it says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. That's part of honor. I know who you are. I know your love for me. I return my love by obeying you. Not to gain your love, but as an expression of me back to you because of your great love. Application for Christmas, this is a time very familiar, and because of our cultures intertwining all the, the trappings, and I, I don't mean that as an insult, all the festivities, um, presents, the, 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 the uh, what do you call it, myth, legend, whatever, of Santa Claus and gifts, um, I think sometimes the identity of this Savior gets minimized as we play up the family celebration aspect of it. So this is the time to celebrate. Christ has come. But let's also, both in our own hearts and teach our children and our grandchildren what it means to honor our Savior. Because I started this message, why was Jesus born? to save us from our sins. That's why in Matthew, Gabriel tells Joseph, Joseph, you shall name him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Do you know what the name Jesus means? It's two words in Hebrew. Yeshua is Jesus' name. It's two words. Yahweh saves. Joshua, or, or Joseph, you shall name your baby, Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. Because your baby is Yahweh incarnate come to save you from your sins. That Savior deserves honor. Two takeaways. The honor of our Lord, which we just discussed. And remember, when we are in each other's lives and space and we get to know each other and we see each other's faults, let's remember mercy over legalism because you're going to want mercy when you fall. Father, I thank you for your word today. And as we now go to taking communion, I pray, Lord, that you keep those two incredible truths in our hearts and minds, that we're here to honor your son because by honoring him, we honor you. And that you've had mercy on us 
expressed in the bread and the wine today. And that we must have mercy on each other. So thank you for your word. Um, And we trust in this next step of our service of honoring you in communion, you would be truly, truly honored. All because of Jesus, we can do this. In his name we pray.